In Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Nahmaduhu anusalli ala rasulihi al-kareem, amma ba'd. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings upon the Prophet, peace be upon him. All right, looks like zombiness is decreasing. Maybe you guys are all getting used to Ramadan. Inshallah. But yes, it seems like people are, are doing pretty well. All right, <clears throat> let's jump right into the material. So we are now in the next subsection of part two. So we are, this is from Ayah 47 to 59. And so the entirety of our discussion yesterday was just on the nature of, of narratives. And in one point that I was mentioning in the context of Allah speaking to the children of Israel, of Israel, is that he's saying to them, remember, I did this to you, or I did this for you. Even though the ayah is being revealed in the year 620-ish of our calendar, our modern calendar, referring to events that took place 2,000 years before. But this was common in the narrative of the children of Israel. And that is also very common in the narrative of, of a lot of uh, American Judaism. That all these events in the past of persecution especially were events that happened to us, to me. And even I remember uh, I had a student, or not a student, a coworker, who was speaking about the builders of the pyramids and he was saying, yeah, those are my ancestors. We built the pyramids and such and such. Uh, but yeah, so now looking at Ayah 47 <coughs> and, and then getting into 48. Ya Bani Israel, so we're looking at who's being addressed, children of Israel. So remember, call to mind the favors that I favored you with. And that I preferred you above all of the worlds. So we have Al-Alameen a, a second time now. First is Rabbil Alameen. Second is, is that Faddaltukum uh, Al-Alameen. That, that Allah Ta'ala here has given them favors that he has not given all the worlds. Given anyone else in history. Anyone else since and perhaps, uh, or anyone else before and perhaps inshallah since. Israel Hadith which looks all the favors that Allah bestowed upon the children of Israel. Uh, Musab's question, I don't think there's a single Hadith. We find it in the Hadith literature, and some of it is taken from another source and remind me to, to comment on that. But <clears throat> what are some of these favors? Some of these favors we mentioned yesterday that uh, the, the most common one we all remember, is, which will be discussed later on is, not today, but uh, is manna and salwa. Manna and quail were being given to them. And according to some readings of it, it wasn't that, okay, so what's manna? Manna is, manna is like tree sap. And then salwa would be these types of, of, of pheasants. And, and some, uh, a more of a modernist reading is that it's, it was made easy for them to catch these birds. Uh, a more traditional reading is that the food was already delivered to them, cooked, good, without them having to do anything. And then the tree sap somehow was made available to them. Um, and keep in mind, we're speaking of an environment in which there were not too many trees. Or that they had a cloud that was hovering over them, shading them their entire lives, uh, or and when they were in the desert, but shading them from, from the heat of the sun. Or that they had clothing that would never wear out. That it, as they grew, it would grow with them. And so what are they being given? Miracle upon miracle upon miracle, as though that is the default of their experience. Now, this is different 
than we have in some mainstream Christianity and Judaism, modern American Christianity and Judaism, which is the view that the Jews are God's chosen people. Uh, in Islam, we're not saying that they're chosen. We're not saying that the Jews are chosen. And by chosen, meaning guaranteed paradise, perhaps to the exclusive uh, exclusion of everyone else. Those issues will be explored in about uh, 35 ayahs from now. But the point here is that that generation or those generations of the past were given all the luxuries of dunya without having to put in any effort. So to contrast that with what we have, this is the question I think Iqbal asked yesterday, to contrast that with what we, what we have, our rizq is set for us, but we have to go through the process of seeking it out and finding it, which then means we might also have to toil uh, in, through the daily grind of work they had the risk without any toil, okay, without any work, okay, which is then setting up the next ayah. So uh, also uh, remember the favor I favored you with. We discussed at the beginning uh, in ayah 40, same language. Okay. Remember the favor that I favored you with. And there in that context, we spoke of it as the contrast between the, the, the carrot and the stick that when you're trying to incentivize some behavior, you might try to lure someone with promise of reward, or you might try to uh, compel someone with promise of threat. And so I have 40 had both of those, right? Uh, remembers the favor, look at all that I've done for you. And you should be terrorized by me. So carrot and stick. Now, what would be an equivalent for us if we go all the way in, incidentally, in the context of the ayahs on fasting. Sorry. I think it's ayah 186. Almost there, hopefully, hopefully none of you are getting dizzy from either the fasting or from those quick screen moves. Okay. Uh, so when my servants ask you about me, what's the context of this? That the Sahaba would ask the Prophet peace be questions like, where is Allah? And so the answer to that is, when they ask you this question, I am near. And this is a fascinating ayah because it's a double answer. What is the answer to the question, where is Allah? Allah is near. But if you're asking the question, where is Allah, then by definition, Allah is near. So two, two uh, uh, levels of the same point. And then I answer the call of the caller when, when, when they call. And so, so here, if you make dua to Allah, he is answering your dua. Then, فَلْيَسْتَجِيبُ لِي so then let them answer, believe in me and answer my call. Let them answer my call or seek to answer my call and believe in me so that they are rightly guided. Okay, uh, here in Ayah 186, I'm speaking of us, the Ummah of Muhammad, peace be upon him. That uh, what was Bani Israel told? <clears throat> Remember the favorite I favored you with? And, and then fulfill your covenant with me, fulfill your pact with me. 
And what are we, Umar Muhammad, being told? Okay, if you ask for something, I'm going to give it to you. Allah Ta'ala is not saying you're going to recognize that it's given. And also, uh, when we when it becomes relevant, we'll talk about it. Even when we're making du'a, you can't put a deadline on Allah. And there's, of course, some du'as that, you know, you're not going to get to the actual prayer of your tongue answer. We've talked about that. Uh, but he's saying, I am going to answer your call. So, in return, you answer mine. So your risk is coming no matter what. Okay. You answer my call or not, your risk is coming. Okay. But I'm going to answer your call uh, even if you don't answer mine. Okay. But you should then answer mine as well. Which, uh, in light of the contrast with the children of Israel, again, seems uh, to be a different manifestation, a different type of rahmah. So bringing us back to Ayah 47 and 48. There we are. So <clears throat> remember the favorite I favored you with and that I gave you this fadl above all the worlds. Here it says prefer to you above all the worlds. Then wattahu, have taqwa, shield yourself. Again, here the translation says fear. Shield yourself regarding a day in which the following things are not gonna uh, not gonna help you. These are all things that can help you in dunya with other people. These are things that will not give you any benefit in akhirah. Yeah. And so, so number one, <coughs> nobody can stand in for anybody else. Number two, nor is there any shifa. Okay, this uh, we're going to talk about also in a moment further, inshallah. No intercession. And so I don't know if Abdullah's in the class right now. I asked Abdullah to also do some research for me. And he makes the point that you don't find intercession in the Old Testament, in the Torah. You do find it more as a, uh, a New Testament concept. Uh, but there's no intercession, nor can you ransom your way out, nor can you buy your way out nor are you going to get any help. Now, think of this in the context of how dunya operates, especially if you're in struggle or especially if you're in trouble. In many, many cases, one or more of these four methods can get you out of your issue. From the last one, perhaps somebody can come in and help you. If you're going through a struggle, maybe you're sick, perhaps you can turn to, to a physician who, who, who can help you. Nor can you buy your way out. So one of the things people are going to try to do with Allah on the Day of Judgment is literally try to buy their way out of their punishment. Okay. But that's a thing you can perhaps do in the dunya, ransom. Or you can have someone vouch for you. Yeah, this person's fine. Okay, let him go. And sometimes you might even have someone else take, take the fall for you. None of that can happen in Akhirah. So what are we saying? If you put Ayah 47 and 48 together, what are they being told? You are given every ease of the world without any effort. Therefore, focus your efforts on your hereafter because you're not going to be given anything there. 
So in the same way we said earlier in the last course uh, in Aya 29, that Allah created the entirety of the world to serve us in our service to him. Then what else are we saying? That part of the purpose of the design of the world is to help us in our service to, to Allah. The children of Israel are not only given that, they're given every luxury. So you don't have to worry about anything at all. You can dedicate your entire focus on worship of Allah. You can dedicate your entire focus on, uh, on your akhirah, your afterlife. Right? Because how does this dunya that we all live in work? You know, I wish I could do all this stuff. I wish I could make additional prayers. I wish I could do more study, but I also have to earn to be able to put, to put be able to put food on the table. And on top of that, I have to be able to sleep a certain hours a day and eat certain types of food to keep myself in 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 terms of uh, 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 shape, so that I can keep working, so that I can have other time to to worship Allah. Bani Israel doesn't have to do any of that. And so having said that, uh, let's speak it a little bit more. There's a concept in, in Quranic thought called ellipsis. And I see some questions and I'll, and I'll get to them inshallah. Ellipsis. And, and so imagine, and so one of the common understandings of how the Quran is written, I don't mean like physically written, but you know, how the Quran speaks is that there are often blank lines. We should assume that there's blank lines in, potentially in any verse. And those blank lines get fulfilled first by the Quran itself. Okay, so this is basically a general principle of tafsir. So, <clears throat> whoops. I do that. That was pretty cool. Okay. So, in terms of this idea of tafsir versus ta'wil, you know, and some of the other terms we might use, tafhim. So, tafsir, the idea of tafsir, we in our modern context often think, all right, here's a commentary telling me what the ayah really says. Okay. More often than not, tafsirs are not written for the layperson. Such commentaries are actually written for the scholarly class to raise the points about things that are built into the ayahs or filling the blanks uh, within the ayahs or to draw attention to what the ayahs are pointing to. So for example, one type of tafsir will have hadith that are answering some of the things that an ayah is speaking about. But to help make sense of this, what are the primary sources of tafsir? First, it's Quran itself. Meaning, how do you explain Quran? First and foremost, with Quran. Second one is probably obvious, with the Prophet, peace be upon him. Anyone want to guess the third one? Third one is, how do the Arabs understand it? The native Arabs because the Quran is full of idioms. It's full of figures of speech that a non-Arab may not pick up on. Something as simple as in, 
in common Arabic culture, at least back then, and the Arabs of this group can, can let us know if it's, still, if it's still going on today. When Arabs like something, they'll give it a whole bunch of names. Yeah. So the Quran has many, many names. And so all of those could be referring to the same thing. Al-Kitab, Al-Furqan, Al-Dhikr, Al-Nur. Or it could be that they're giving us different dimensions and such. And then after that, you get to other things. Um, and so there's a genre of literature, Israeliyat, which we might've talked about. I think we might've talked about when we we're speaking of the story of Adam and Eve, peace be upon them. Israeliyat is what information can we find in the books of Jews and Christians? What do we find in their scriptures? What do we find in their scholarly sources? A lot of revisionists today don't like to use Israeliyat. Um, and then, of course, using your sense or reason. And so, looking at Ayah 48, so looking uh, back here at Ayah 48. Okay, so, so shifa will not be accepted. Okay, intercession will not be accepted, accepted. If you take the ayah on its own, it looks like something categorical. But then what happens, we jump to, for example, ayat al-Kursi, surah to ayat 255. And once again, look away if you need to for, for so your brain doesn't malfunction by the jumping of the screen. Almost there. Inshallah, we will get there together. Okay, I heard it. Okay. So most or all of you know, know uh, um, Ayat al-Kursi. So it's this big ayat speaking who, about who is Allah to us. And then we have near the middle of this ayah, man yashfa'u indahu illa bi'idhni. So who is it that can intercede except by his permission? Okay. And so, so what are we saying here? How is this commonly read? First, you and I see it, and it's a question. Who can intercede with Allah okay. except by his permission? But how is this interpreted? That Allah Ta'ala does give permission for intercession. So if you merge this ayah with ayah 48, ayah 48 says no intercession. This ayah says who can give intercession except uh, 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 by the permission of Allah. Okay. Then we're saying ayah 48, the full understanding of 48, in fact, rather than, you know, Go the hard way. I'll give you a, a quick glance at Loyola. Enjoy Loyola, everybody. Um, so, Omar, this is the the baseline for those uh, uh, suluk and taqlid. Uh, explain further. I want to say yes, but I'm not sure how you mean it. So, like you know, those. Uh, uh, in the Sufism that, you know, you have to be, do like a sluk and follow some sheikh or shayyuk to get oh, okay, the... Yeah. That's a little bit different, uh, but let me get to that in a moment too, inshallah. 
Okay, so, so what we're saying is that the full understanding here would be no intercession is going to be accepted except where Allah allows, which then can potentially apply to all of this. Okay. Can we find an example where someone can stand in for you on the day of judgment? There, that we can't. Okay, I'm not aware of off the top of my head. But the modification of here, no intercession will be accepted. So, nor will compensation be taken from it. There, uh, it's hard to find an example. I can't recall any example uh, in the teachings of the Quran or the Prophet, peace upon where that will be given. Aid might happen. Uh, aid might happen from Allah himself, where he may give you mercy. But do you see the key point that I'm making here? The first point we just made is looking at these two ayahs in relationship with each other. Now we're looking at this ayah in relationship with the rest of the Quran as a lesson on how tafsir works. So going back once again to this, we're saying based on Quran itself, intercession is possible where Allah allows it. But then if we go through the Hadith literature, we have many, many examples of the way you can get intercession in the Akhirah. So for example, someone who reads Quran on a regular basis, reads, recites Quran on a regular basis, especially uh, that then the Quran will, will intercede for you. Or if you read Al-Baqarah and or Ali Imran on a regular basis, they're gonna fly in like birds, those two surahs. And then they are going to stand up for you. And of course, we know that uh, if, you, if you die as a shaheed, then you can potentially uh, uh, bring in you know, upwards of 70 people of your choice into paradise with you. So in the Hadith literature, we have many, many narrations of how intercession can happen, but we're arguing with the Quran that the ayah, one ayah says you only have this much, but another ayah, we can interpret this much. And so we default to the reading that has more rahma. Professor, quick question. Could we say that the first one was in reference to the children of Israel and then the second one, like more inclusive intercession would be for later nations? So that can, uh, that can uh, be a possibility. And, and so I, don't, I wouldn't say that that is wrong. I would still default to uh, something more unified you know, from Allah. Because even for that, we could still say, except where Allah permits, right? Um, and, and then maybe with that population, he doesn't permit anybody. See what I'm saying? So I don't think it's wrong to say one is for their nation, this one's for their nation, but I think it doesn't change anything if we add, you know, in I 48, you know, no intercession except where Allah permits. But for the other three things that are, that are stated that I, uh, I can't think of exceptions um, that are given, except the Rahmah of Allah and for the fourth one. Yeah. Make sense? Okay. And already we're at 25. Oh, much long time flies. Well, I don't know how painfully long this is for, for some of you. Let's look at some of the questions. Abdullah is asking, what about the hadith where the Prophet peace on him, was upset with the companion who was reading the Bible in his presence? So this is Omar who is reading from some pages of the Torah. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, is, 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 
I mean, I'm going to use the word upset very cautiously, uh, but he's not approving. And what does he say? He says, if Musa was alive today, he would be following me. Uh, but what is the distinction here between Israeliyat versus what Omar was doing? Omar was doing it for guidance. Yeah. And so we're told, no, you don't go to anything but Allah and his, his final messenger to have the pathway to guidance. Yeah. For reference, then you'll find that throughout the whole history of our tradition. Um, and that's what Israeliyat is. No one, I don't know of anyone who argues that the material in Israeliyat is useful for guidance. It is more for purposes of reference. Like here are some insights we can get on the story of Adam and Eve, peace be upon them. Meaning where does Israeliyat really usually play out? It plays out in terms of historical uh, history. Uh, what do we find in their sources about this event, the splitting of the sea? What do we find in, in the event of the tree in paradise, so far and so on. Okay. But that's not guidance material. It'd be reference, sort of like using science to, as a reference material for some of the passages in the Quran. You're not gonna get guidance from that. It is reference material. Like when it talks about mountains or the cosmos, you know, or, or you know, the, the two seas, the sweet and the salty sea and so forth and so on. Um, Musab, let me know if that answers the, the question, uh, answers what I was answering to Abdullah. Uh, uh, Basir, where does it say every luxury for the children of Israel? That I'm saying is basically فَدَّلْتُكُمْ عَلَى الْعَالَمِينَ That they're given uh, um, all of this preference and ease. Stephanie Alexander, why must the children of Israel be blessed, been blessed with uh, or why might the children of Israel have been given so many miracles? So a uh, couple possibilities. Uh, so the short answer is going to be because that is what Allah willed. Uh, but what are some insights that we can derive from, from uh, like the wisdom? They went from complete subjugation, slavery, under the Pharaoh. And, and then now they're being given the complete opposite. So the inverse of what they're given, now they're being given. And it becomes sort of a test on its own. In which condition were you a better believer? in complete subjugation uh, to a tyrant or literally complete freedom as close to the experience of paradise on earth as a person can experience. And so that would be a possible wisdom behind, behind the logic. Let me know if that makes sense. Omar, I have a question of you. The, yeah. uh, the people being addressed as Bani Israel, could that address itself not be a favor because if we, I'm asking myself the question, why Faddal Tukum? And the only reason, that, the only thing that comes to my mind is that Bani Israel is children of uh, uh, Yaqub alayhi salam. And Good. this, uh, by the time Musa alayhi salam comes along the scene, uh, as, uh, these particular people, as opposed to maybe the other people around them, are the ones that have now entrenched a sense of monotheism. So the one thing about the, uh, the Israelites is that even in their in their slavery, they have not let go of their monotheism. So is that possible, the, maybe possibly the reason for, for Daltukum because of the uh, retention of monotheism rather than genetics or race? Makes sense. Because uh, it, doesn't square, it doesn't square up with the, uh, with the justice that, and the, the Quranic statement that every nation has received a prophet. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, you just lost me with uh, what does uh, the last part you mentioned? How does that affect everything? Uh, uh, you're saying they maintain monotheism even before Musa uh -huh. is is, is uh -huh. speaking to them. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. That's a really really interesting point. Could be it's sort of like a reward in dunya, uh, an ease in dunya for for their persistence of monotheism. Maybe it makes sense to me. Okay. I mean, it works. I think uh, hold on to it as a thesis. Uh, I don't know that you would come across uh, skimming in my brain through the Quran. I don't know if you'd come across anything to counter what you're saying, but I think that's a very. Yeah, very this is a purely self-preservation uh, thought because at this point in time, I think we Muslims could probably be the standard bearers of monotheism. All the way, you know, we could just as well be open up to uh, susceptible to the shortcomings of Bani Israel. But, you know, I mean, look at the positive. That, I mean, that part is definitely there because what is, you know, what when the companions are asking the Prophet, peace be upon him, what do you fear for us in the future? Do you fear that we're going to be poor? And he says, what? No, I fear that you're going to be rich. And then... It's as though uh, the more dunya we have, that is our tragic flaw uh, or our risk of, of losing or corrupting faith. But, yeah. Any other questions or thoughts? Do you think that um, when Allah SWT uh, gives a nation um, uh, and they, they don't respond uh, in in a way that pleases Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then the second time he addresses the same nation or later on when he will address the nation he will uh, he will have a different tone uh, so uh, we so in terms of the previous nations uh, everybody up before Isa alayhi salam what is the cycle that the nations go through so so I think we did the one drawing about like the different phases of an individual's life. We have like pre-eternity, pre-womb, womb, dunya, uh, barzakh, and then akhira. Does that sound vaguely familiar to anyone? Not if it's not. Yeah, okay. All right. So in terms of the old nations in the Quran. So I mean, what I mean by this is the people before uh, Jesus, peace be upon him, before those nations. Uh, the cycle that they seem to go through is that you have uh, a prophet appointed among them, a prophet from them, who is calling them to the message and is living the message. So what is the message? You know, worship no one but Allah. There's a coming day of judgment. There's a final prophet coming. At the very minimum, it's those three. And that prophet is also living that message. The prophet is calling, or we've already said that. The population rejects the prophet. Uh, often led by influencers. Influencers are usually either the political and or financial elite. Might be the priests who are telling the people, do not give up your gods, right? This is what we see in the story of Musa alayhi salam. Okay. 
And then <clears throat> along with that, population behaves corruptly. Now, one thing, um, it, let's see. So then the prophet uh, either leaves and or prays against them. Sometimes the prophet might even be killed. One thing that changes is at, in this phase, the message of the prophet is Ya'awmi. Oh, my people. And then in Arabic, it becomes Ya kafirun. Qul ya ayyuhal kafirun. And then what happens? Nation gets destroyed. So what I'm saying in, in uh, relates to your question, Basir, that... Um, uh, wait, is, how do you pronounce your name properly? We, we've been having this class for like a month. Basit. Basit, yeah. Okay, because I've been steadily going more and more towards Basir, because maybe your questions have such deep insight, mashallah. So Basir, the one who has insight, mashallah. Uh, we do see an evolution in the way the Prophet speaks about their own people, which then by definition would be the way Allah Ta'ala is speaking about them or to them. Uh, but this is the, this seems to be the formula. Now, what happens for later nations? Okay, so with later nations, you don't have. Uh, oh wait, and so how are they getting destroyed? They're getting destroyed by some some natural cataclysm. Yeah, right. Meteors coming from the sky, rain drowns everybody, things like that. Uh, for later generations, you don't really have a prophet, so, uh, but you do have populations that will behave corruptly. And so, so then what happens? Instead of getting destroyed by a natural act, the nation gets destroyed or taken over by another nation. So we know the ayahs, like in Surah Al-Anfal, Surah Ra'd, Surah 8, and Surah 13, that Allah will not change the condition of a people until or unless they change what is within themselves. Because of our defeated state, we often speak of that saying, okay, the Muslim is going to remain in this condition until we change what is in our hearts, then we will rise. But that is also interpreted if a nation is in a high state, Allah Ta'ala is going to keep them in a high state unless or until they change what is in their hearts, meaning unless and until they allow corruption to seep into their hearts and then by extension into their actions. And then they become vulnerable to be overtaken by another nation. And, you know, looking at what's happening in 2020, it's getting kind of scary. Uh, Musab uh, and, and Basir, let me know if that uh, answers your question. And please let me know in the future if I mispronounce your name, inshallah. I'm curious, during the time of money, did other nations get prophets or were the prophets exclusively for Jews? So, so let's change Jews to Hebrews, um, speaking more from uh, an ethnic point of view. And in fact, let's, let's discuss that point really briefly. So what is a term in the Quran for Jews? It is Yehud. 
And what is the term in the Quran for Christians? Nisara. Now, we often translate it as Jews and Christians. Uh, Yehud is actually the people of Judea. Nisara are the people of Nazareth. Now, is there something that we can connect to the fact that Nasara is related to the word Nasar, like, you know, Man Ansari Ilallah? Probably. And then is there something we connect, we can connect with the idea of Hidayah? Yeah, probably. But in terms of, of the actual term, it's the people of Judea and the people of Nazareth. So Isa Islam, Jesus is from Nazareth, and then these other prophets are from Judea. And so, so, so uh, Musab, to take your point further, uh, we're taught that there's how many prophets? 120,000, 124,000 prophets. It is fair to assume that there are prophets throughout the whole world uh, in different parts of the world at this time, because the children of Israel received many, many prophets, two at a time for a long period of time, right? It wasn't just Moses, peace be upon him. It was Musa and Yahya, Moses and, I mean, Musa and Harun. And then at the end, it's Isa and Yahya, and then pairs and pairs and pairs uh, uh, in between. So, but it's fair to assume that there are other prophets spanning somewhere in this time elsewhere in, in this world. Although we are also taught there's no prophets in the world between Isa, between Jesus and uh, Muhammad, peace be upon him. Um, Basir, but children of Israel's prophets were among them and they rejected some of them and their prophets. Yeah, and then Allah, as Allah Ta'ala, as a mercy, as a rahmah, even gave them more prophets and then gave them even more prophets and then gave them even more prophets. And, and then finally, we'll see when we get to around, uh, I want to say, uh, around I 95, then they reach a point where it's too late. One Point of too late is going to be around 59, I have 59. Another one's going to happen a little bit later after that. Uh, so uh, thanks for answering that question. Uh, what I was trying to refer to was that if you if you look at uh, I have 40 uh, and onwards, Allah Ta'ala talks to Bani Israel in, in a certain way. Um, and later on, you will see that the progression uh, in terms of Allah Ta'ala's anger towards them Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you also made a point that uh, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala gave them that much, and that's why Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is saying, "Now you you better reply to me." Whereas when he he is dealing with uh, with us, he says that uh, you know, like if you ask me, I grant it. But I mean, he's not re- really requiring us, uh, but he does say that re- respond to my prayer. So do you think that uh, it is more of um, a, a an old nation which rejected the the message of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and that's why Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala is saying, "You remember all those favors I did? Now you better uh, you, you better uh, do the things that you promised to me." So is that why why what we see here, rather than a difference in behavior between two nations? Okay, so uh, I think I'm agreeing here, but I'm getting a little bit lost in the pronouns. Uh, the last part when you said, 
that Allah Ta'ala is saying, remember what I gave those nations, you better sort of get your act together. Who's you here? Is it the Jews of Medina or is it the, the Muslims of, like, of Jews of Medina? Uh, Jews of Medina, uh, it seems consistent with, with what you're saying, right? Going right from the very first eye that we looked at, you know. Remember, remember the favorite I favored you with and fulfill your pact with me. So in other words, uh, can we say that when Muslims, uh, you know, as, as we have grown old, like it's been 1400 years, now uh, let's say if Allah SWT talked to us, he would, he would talk to us in that same way that, you know, I, I gave you my favors and, you know, you did this, you did that. Uh, would, would, would we be, you know, being, be addressed in the same way now if he talked to us? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I think if we use shikva, javabi shikva from Iqbal, the answer would be yes, complaint and answer. Uh, maybe we can have a, a separate class on that. But um, I'm cautious uh, about applying that for in terms of how our dean works, um, because essentially uh, it's, uh, uh, can I be held to account for what a generation before has done? Right, the Quran says over and over again that they will have what they have earned, you will have what you what you earn. And so I'm cautious to to go that far. We're, there's definitely like a narrative of, of human history, you know, that's gonna end with the signs coming before the day of judgment and the day of judgment. Uh, but I don't know that it's uh, consistent for us to be held to account, to be held to account. Um, uh, because of the what Allah Ta'ala has given previous generations. Um, unless we're only saying, you know, remember what you were given earlier in your own life, that could work stronger. What do you think, Pasi? Yeah, I, I think I agree with you, but uh, uh, I mean, the reason why I mention all this is because uh, I think a lot of time, um, or at least with Dr. Israr, that's what one of the, one of his, uh, narrative was that you know uh, there there's a hadith of prophet which said that uh, that the bani israel and my uh, my nation are like two uh, like one, two pieces of the same shoes a pair of shoes uh, that if if one does that you know the other one will but uh, but his point was that uh, it's not going to be in this same sequential order. Um, but I do, I, I, I do like that you, you are a little bit cautious that maybe, uh, you know, we, we, uh, the purpose of mentioning all of this is that uh, when, when Allah SWT gives us a favor that we, we should respond to them or how in, in gratitude leads to, uh, to kufr. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all knows best. I mean, Dr. Svar's argument is that as two nations, uh, just as in terms of the nation of Oma Musa went through this rise and then this fall, this rise, we all have par a parallel um, uh, path as a nation. Uh, but yeah, it doesn't seem consistent that we would be held to account for what previous generations were given. You know, I mean, because think about it, like suppose, I mean, we're speaking from the perspective of of privilege and comfort and luxury of being in the West. Um, if we had the same conversation, you know, for people in a village in, in, in India right now, uh, would we say, look, you know, this is Allah's punishment on you because of 
what the previous generations have received. I don't think we'd want to say that. When you say previous generation, you mean like our previous generation, meaning like the, the one who came in the beginning? Yeah, uh, meaning the last 1400 years. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, Dr. Mahan, I didn't understand your question. If there's anything in the paper worth pondering, it would be nice to point that out. Yeah, I'm really sorry. Um, I, I typed a question and I accidentally sent it to Sami and then I copied and pasted it, but it pasted something from an email I was writing. Okay, it's, okay. Here, so it's not related to class. But what I, what I was trying to say to Sami that, that went to Sami accidentally was in response to um, Kazi Saab, which was, um, you know, I, my understanding was that the blessings actually, it was a favor on Abraham. Uh, within, within uh, I think, Jewish tradition, yeah. Well, yeah, within Jewish tradition. Oh, okay, so yeah, Jewish tradition is different. Okay. Yeah, uh, you want to you wanna explain that for everyone else? Well, no, um, um, no, you go ahead. <laughs> okay, anyway, I mean, in a nutshell, what is Dr. Mahan referring to? That uh, part of the event of the story of the sacrifice of Abraham and his son, Ishaq, um, is this promise, this covenant that God makes with, with the Hebrews. And, and so the luxuries that they're given is part of the fulfillment of that covenant. And then many extend that to, to the modern establishment of the state of Israel as well that God has promised us this through Abraham. Okay. Well, one of my theology professors, he's, he used to say, uh, how, how odd of God to choose the Jews. <laughs> Any other questions or thoughts about anything else? Oh, so it looks uh, like uh, Adnan is going to be giving us a class on some of Iqbal's poetry, inshallah. Okay, good. Anyone else? Somebody looked like it sounded like someone uh, unmuted themselves with the question. Uh, when when you uh, think about Allah Subhanahu wa Taala saying that He had give, He had preferred uh, uh, them preferred them over the other nations, uh, was that because of certain um, uh, intellectual? Uh, advantage that they had, or uh, are, are, are Jews smarter than everyone else? Uh, um, well, that's one of the narratives that we have. As yeah, yeah, I mean, it's that's it's definitely a, a common uh, modern narrative. Uh, and then you know, when I used to have, I used to do these classes with with adults, and there were a lot of Jews in the class. Some of who would in, uh, uh, insert that point, and then I'd make the point that well, Pakistan was established a year before you guys, so. What does that say about us compared to you? You know, I'll have that type of you know going back and forth. But anyway, um, uh, I don't know that this also includes you know the gift of of intelligence. Just um, on the chosenness narrative, um, I as far as I know, I'm we don't necessarily contradict that the the Jewish narrative um, picking up from the Israeliat. I mean, just I'm thinking of uh, Martin Ling's. He begins the seer of the prophet with that, with that promise. Um, but what do you think about um, salvation, though? You know, I think uh, for us, you know, the sentiment doesn't extend into the akhirah. Yeah, that's a good uh, point. And I, you know, the Jewish tradition, their their views on afterlife uh, have also, I mean, according to historical scholarship. Uh, evolved 
So initially they didn't necessarily believe in an afterlife, but uh, that's a di- again, a different tradition of scholarship. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I do find, um, you know, attempts to reconcile uh, different traditions very fascinating because I think a lot of things can be reconciled in a way that's not apologetic, meaning in a way that still keeps the integrity of both of the traditions that I think is a fun aspect of, of inter-religious scholarship. So, so that works for me. So Omar, going back to the question I asked about the Tazkia and Suluk, so yes, is, yeah. that, is that will comes from that um, the Quran or the people are using those from the Hadith? Um, uh, I think, I mean, so the more orthodox people will make reference to, to Quran, whether it's ayahs like, you know, those people who do jihad in our way, meaning um, jihad meaning in struggle, not in terms of fighting, in our way, subulana, then, you know, Allah Ta'ala will, will guide them. Uh, but I think some of that comes more from some Hadith references and such. Uh, but not as an obligation. So this idea of shifa, does it extend to uh, sources where the prophet, peace be upon him, doesn't mention? So you'll find some schools of Sufis will take the approach that I am uh, imploring my sheikh to then implore, and I'm not using the word dua on purpose, to implore (coughs) his sheikh who's passed away to implore his sheikh, to implore his sheikh, to implore his sheikh, to implore Ali, to implore Abu Bakr, to implore the Prophet, peace be upon him, to do shifa for us. Uh, there, uh, I think it's hard to, in my experience, it's hard to find clear argument uh, uh, in the way you can find clear argument for like things like you have to pray. Uh, but there are many ayahs and hadith that you can read uh, as though uh, they support that. So, for example, if you think of the ayahs in the Quran where Allah is talking about Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, in the present tense, you'll find some schools of Sufis that will read those in the present tense in 2020. And, and so, so that creates possibilities. Yeah, my question is towards more like, you know, that um, if you see that Sayyid Ahmad Shaheed and um, Asha recently uh, with, among a smaller group, that you know his his uh, his um, you know uh, the chain of the of the family is goes and have all those Sufis part of that, and they all kind of all the way to the Nanmutisab you know they they actually kind of actively participate in active jihad and active activism of the Islamic perspective. Mm-hmm. So so I mean that and you know most of the most of those Naqshbandi and all these things are coming from that thought process that the activism is part of that Sufism. I mean, I'm not talking about that, uh, the molested shape we have in our subcontinent about mm-hmm. the Sufism, that's a different story. But the real one, right? All the way from the Sayyid Ahmed and, and his chain. Well, I mean, I'm also cautious against negating what we have, a lot of those things we have in the subcontinent uh, as well. Um, but nevertheless, you know, like Adnan gave the examples of, of people in what we call the modern era, the people who were definitely Sufis who were who were uh, fighting against injustice like Abdul Qadir al-Jazairi and such. Mm. Uh, so we definitely have those examples, but it seems that in the past few centuries that became the exception rather than the norm. Right. Yeah. But I mean, the defense that Sufis would give for why, because the difference between power and lack of power 
let's call it lightning happened right when you did that. The difference between power and lack of power is so great that your best bet is to focus on on Vika and getting closer to a law. I mean, that's not different than Dr. Sarah's argument for why revolution now has to be nonviolent. That it makes one of his arguments is the same point. That at the time of the prophet peace upon him, you had a small group of people with sticks and spears and uh, bows and arrows going against a large group of people with sticks and spears and bows and arrows. Now you have a small group of people going against massive superpower militaries. And so the math doesn't work. So if anything, if you're going to have a revolution, it has to be nonviolent. So, uh, so what essentially what I'm saying is that it is possible that the Sufis shifted from activism uh, or the justice work because they're saying the, the, the obstacle or the wall is too high. But all knows best. So, so you're saying that, you know, if, if we read between the lines of that Enjaman Rupadamul Quran, Dr. Sarah you know, the vision is fall into that category of Taskia. Uh, keep going, explain further. So, so in that, and I think I, I would like to see Mahan perspective on this one because he spoke in 2000 about Anjumar Khuddamul Quran, right? So that, you know, just keep in the six steps, the first step is keep to Taskia and Arabia, right? So, so I think that those are the majority of the steps we never get out from right now. So, so I mean, uh, part of what I'm hearing, and then uh, I'll let Dr. Mahan take over, but part of what I'm hearing is, is that uh, looking at the situation on the ground, what are our priorities at the moment? And, and so, so even from Dr. Asrar's view, okay, it's one thing to try to work for Khilafah while you're living in Pakistan. It's something to try to work for Khilafah if you're living in the United States. In the United States, you, may not, you might as well not even try. Okay. Uh, in Pakistan, it's a possibility. And so if we're just speaking from the reality on the ground, what can be accomplished, then that will also dictate a lot of the first few steps. But uh, Dr. Mahan, uh, any thoughts? Yeah, so this is a bit, you know, our in internal conversation. Mm -hmm. But um, my whole um, take at that time was that you stick to the earlier steps because the first step actually was to have a revolutionary ideology and to make da'wah towards it. And the ideology was described, you know, with the term uh, Tawheed, and it has its social, political, and economic corollaries. And I was saying that we haven't really clarified what that means. And so to start to call people towards it is premature. Mm -hmm. And then there was a second critique on Tanzim, which the Ba'a that was taken was Ba'a which took place at the Hijra. And so where, you know, you're in a, just to uh, map onto the Sira, you're in a Meccan phase, but you're taking a Hijra Baya. And so there was a few problems there that I thought we needed to work out intellectually before we, um, uh, before, you know, jumping the gun, so to speak. <laughs> Hence, and, and, and it was the job of the Anjuman, the chapter that Adnan didn't read, in uh, uh, you know at the end of Renaissance, uh, which was to do some of that intellectual work, mm -hmm. and so the point was that one you know having both two organizations run parallel, the intellectual movement and the social or the political movement presumes that the intellectual 
movement is going to be subservient to a political movement that's already in motion, whereas it's actually supposed to set the terms for that movement. Uh, but instead, it's co-opted by it from the very beginning, so it can't do its work. To, to translate uh, what Dr. Mahan is saying for everyone else who has no idea what he's talking about. Um, so, so we're making reference to things that were part of this organization that many of us used to be part of. Um, in answering these questions of how do we implement you know, this, this whole vision of, of, of Islam in our time and place. And so, so to translate for you, uh, the one issue that every group has to face, because I'm saying this because also we have, we have Sufis here and such that have bayah with, with, with Dr. Omar or, or Sheikh uh, Muhammad uh, Jilani, and then we have other people who are parts of other groups here. Uh, one of the questions is always gonna be, you know, uh, of the practices of the past, uh, how much of that and how do you modify that for the moment you're in? Uh, because the default is often to think, well, this is how we've done it. That's for, that's the way to do it. And one of the messages of, of uh, that we can pull from the Dr. Esrar book that we went through last week, and, and especially Iqbal's book, Reconstruction of Religious Thought in Islam, is no, a lot of those things aren't going to work. Right. And in speaking from within the tradition, he's saying uh, a lot of those things uh, are not going to work and have to be rediscovered or reinvented and such. Ibadah is going to remain the same. But a lot of the practices that we do uh, have become anachronistic. In any case, uh, I have to head out for, 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 for my next thing. Um, so we'll stop right here. It's actually a joke. I mean, if Adnan wants to give us a class on Shikla, Jahab, Shikla, and Iblis Gemajah Sushura, I think that would be pretty awesome or uh, if someone else wants to do it. Uh, but otherwise, we will stop right here. And okay, Adnan is answered categorically. No. Okay, give us a very Adnan answer. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Wa akhir da'wana and alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. May Allah tell the word you all, inshallah. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.